Hi, my name is Richard Goldstein, and I'm going to speak today about the future of international justice, in particular international criminal justice. Uh, in order to, to understand the subject, I think it's important to have a bit of history to set the context uh, for the subject, and I'm going to start off in 1945 with the Nuremberg Trials. Um, I'm sure you all know that the Nuremberg Trials were set up to put on trial to, to prosecute uh, the leaders of the Nazi regime who were responsible for so many horrific war crimes in the Second World War. Uh, the, the four victorious powers, the United Kingdom, the United States, uh, Russia and France, uh, decided after much debate, some of it acrimonious debate, to set up a war crimes tribunal and to afford the Nazi leaders the benefits of a fair trial. Um, and it was a fair trial by the standards of 1945. I don't think that the uh, trial would have been regarded as, as being particularly fair by today's standards, but it's always unfair to, to use hindsight in criticizing things that happened uh, more than half a century ago. Um, but this was the first time really in history that there'd been what was a multinational trial. Uh, the idea was that each of the four victorious nations had the right to put the Nazi war criminals on trial in their own courts, and particularly military courts. But they decided to combine and join the, the individual powers that each of those nations had and have a combined multinational trial at Nuremberg. And uh, the, uh, some of the Nazi leaders, of course, were acquitted, um, which is, I, th I think, important demonstration that there was fundamental fairness in the trial. Um, I would suggest that you test the fairness of any criminal justice system uh, not by convictions but by acquittals. And by, by that standard, uh, certainly Nuremberg uh, passed with, uh, with, with flying colours. Uh, the basic idea that grew out of Nuremberg was the idea that there were such things as crimes against humanity. Some horrible, horrendous crimes became international crimes and were deemed to be crimes not only against the victims who suffered, the people who were killed or injured or the women who were raped, uh, but, but all of the people um, of the world, all of humankind. So they were crimes against humanity. And the idea was that crimes against humanity could be charged in any court in the world, like piracy. Until this time, only piracy attracted what is called universal jurisdiction a jurisdiction that entitles the courts of any country uh, to put on trial somebody suspected of committing these international crimes no matter where committed and no matter against whom committed. So if, if I commit an international crime uh, in, uh, in Manhattan, uh, in New York uh, uh, today, I could be put on trial uh, in the courts of any country in the world even though those countries have nothing to do um, directly with the, uh, with the offence I committed. It's a crime against all of humankind. Um, that idea caught on at Nuremberg and what was done at Nuremberg was soon after um, adopted unanimously by a resolution of the, security of, of the General Assembly of the United Nations and really became a part of customary international law. And the successes at Nuremberg were sufficient uh, to spur international lawyers and politicians um, to believe that the time had arrived to have a permanent international court, not just one for the Nazis at Nuremberg, but a permanent court that would 
have jurisdiction over these enormous crimes uh, wherever they were committed. And if one wants um, a demonstration of that, if you look at the uh, Genocide Convention of 1948, you'll find in Article 6 a reference to an international court. It says that genocide shall be charged before national courts in the countries where genocide is committed, but also it says it can be charged before an international court having jurisdiction. The idea was that there would be such a court. The second international convention to refer to an international court was the, uh, was the convention in 1973 when the United Nations General Assembly passed a convention condemning apartheid in my own country, South Africa, and declared it, interestingly, to be a crime against humanity. And it also uh, provided for universal jurisdiction against anybody suspected of committing the crime of apartheid. Now, those, those references to an international criminal court really um, came to nothing for many years. Um, the Cold War intervened, and certainly the Soviet Union and China uh, would not have been interested in and would have blocked any, any move towards having a permanent international court. And it took until 1993 for the position to change. And there's been rapid development since then. In 1993, in the face of the terrible war crimes that were being committed in the former Yugoslavia, and particularly in Bosnia and Herzegovina, the United Nations Security Council decided that something had to be done. They had already declared that war crimes were being committed. They had already declared that what was happening in the former Yugoslavia amounted to a threat to international peace and security. They had triggered their peremptory powers under Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter. And what they decided to do was to set up the first ever international uh, criminal court. As I mentioned, Nuremberg was multinational, but what the, the, the uh, Security Council did was to set up a truly international uh, criminal court for the former Yugoslavia. Now, it hadn't done that previously. It didn't do it even in the face of terrible, uh, uh, huge crimes committed by Pol Pot in Cambodia. Uh, it didn't do it for Saddam Hussein, who committed huge crimes against his own people and war crimes against the Iranians using chemical weapons in the war between Iraq and Iran. But it did it for the former Yugoslavia, and I would suggest one of the main reasons uh, was that it was in Europe. And the Europeans had said never again after the Second World War, and here similar crimes were being committed in, in, in prison of war camps and death camps, and the European nations decided that something needed to be done about it. The United States and Canada went along with it, and no, the rest of the world acquiesced. And there was a unanimous resolution of the Security Council in May of 1993, setting up the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Eighteen months later, after another genocide, horrible genocide in Rwanda, the government of Rwanda requested the Security Council to set up a second, a second, as they called, ad hoc international criminal tribunal, and it did so for Rwanda. The two were sister tribunals. They were joined at the head by having a common appeals chamber, and they also had a common uh, chief prosecutor. Uh, I was effectively the first chief prosecutor of the Yugoslavia tribunal, and overnight, 
uh, towards the end of November of 1994, uh, I was suddenly also the chief prosecutor for the Rwanda Tribunal. But um, the, the importance today in looking at the future of international criminal justice is to consider for a moment the successes of the two United Nations tribunals. Their, their first success was to establish that, that international courts could manage, could put on fair trials. Um, there have been some criticisms of the uh, uh, inadequate resources of defendants uh, before the ad hoc tribunals, but that's always a problem. It's a problem in your country, in my country, in every country. Uh, defense lawyers can never have the money and resources available to the state. Public prosecutors have huge teams working for them. They have unlimited uh, access to, 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 to evidence and to witnesses. They can travel around the world if they wish to at state expense. It's always difficult to, to have what's called a quality of arms, to have an evenness between the prosecution and the defense. But the, the United Nations uh, tribunals did go out of their way, and certainly to a far greater extent than at Nuremberg, uh, to assure that defendants had, had adequate uh, defense counsel uh, and defense resources. And the trials have judged, been judged generally to be fair uh, by international standards. The second success was that these tribunals, for the first time, began using international law, uh, international criminal law, the Geneva Conventions, uh, crimes against humanity as defined for uh, the Nuremberg trials, uh, um, the Genocide Convention, and the customary law of war, war crimes as they are generally called. Now, they had never been used to the, to the enormous credit of the International Committee of the Red Cross. That organization regards itself with every justification as being the guardian of the law of war, and particularly of the Geneva Conventions, they had developed this law over more than a century. And I have the utmost admiration for them because they did it knowing that no courts were using it. Uh, but, but they kept at it. And when courts were set up in 1993 and 1994, there was this body of law available for the judges to use. Uh, had, they, had they not had that, uh, it, it, uh, one shudders to think how, how they would have struggled uh, to find a body of law that they could deal with, that they could use. Uh, but the law hadn't been used. And if you look at the uh, reports of the decisions of the Yugoslavia and Rwanda Tribunal, you'll see a huge development, really a flowering of international criminal law because judges and lawyers were using it. And it, 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 it advanced, it developed in consequence. The most important example of this development relates to gender-related crimes. Uh, before the Yugoslavia and Rwanda tribunals were set up, systematic mass rape uh, used in war was just about neglected. Uh, it wasn't referred to, rape wasn't referred to as one of the crimes and the grave breach provisions of the uh, Geneva Conventions of 1949. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't regarded generally as a particularly serious war crime. Um, it had been neglected because systematic mass rape had been used for centuries, uh, but it was ignored, I would suggest, because these laws were written by men, uh, for men, and they regarded rape like plunder as one of the almost automatic consequences of war, uh, not recognizing that it was being used uh, as a policy 
uh, as, as systematic mass rape was being, being ordered uh, by, by commanders in various war situations. And the result was that the, the tribunals started charging systematic mass rape and other forms of horrible uh, sexual violence as war crimes. And uh, it was very exciting when the Rwanda tribunal uh, held uh, in, in the appeals chamber, upholding a decision of the, of the trial chamber, held that systematic mass rape in the circumstances that it, it was used in Rwanda during the genocide, that the actual rape, the systematic mass rape, was held to constitute uh, a uh, was held to constitute genocide. That was the first time in history that that had happened, and it was it, it was a very very important development. In the Yugoslavia tribunal, too, a rape became more and more the subject of indictments that were issued uh, by the prosecutor. There are new definitions, uh, international definitions of rape. They permeating out, uh, they being looked at by domestic courts. Uh, so there has been a huge development in that area. There's been a development too in another important area. Traditionally, uh, the law of war distinguished between international armed conflict, uh, conflict between nations on the one hand, and non-international armed conflict or civil wars on the other hand. And they had a different body of laws applying to international armed conflict. They gave greater protection to innocent civilians and non-belligerents if it was an international war than they did if it was an internal or civil war. Um, it, it's really uh, regrettable that, that innocent civilians should have less protection uh, in, an in, uh, in, uh, in an internal uh, armed conflict than they would in an international armed conflict. The reason, of course, was that sovereign states didn't want international laws to inhibit them in the way they dealt with their own terrorists, rioters, and so on. So they were ready to agree to laws of war applicable to international war, but they were very resistant to have it applicable to internal armed conflict. And uh, in, the, in the work of the, particularly the Yugoslavia tribunal, that distinction has been narrowed uh, to, to a considerable extent, and, and, and the laws of war have been held to be applicable in modern international uh, uh, humanitarian law to be applicable uh, also in, in, in internal armed conflicts. So you can see how the law develops uh, through, through being used, and that was an important success of the, uh, of the tribunals. Possible deterrence. People always ask me, uh, do these war crimes tribunals deter people from, uh, from committing uh, the, these terrible war crimes? Now, of course, deterrence is always almost impossible to prove. How do you prove what would have happened but for the law? Uh, how can you prove in your country or mine or any country uh, that, the, that the murder rate would go up uh, uh, if there were better laws, or, what, or, or it's, it's higher in countries with, with weaker law enforcement. So it's difficult to, to prove deterrence. Uh, but there are two, two examples that I can offer of, of deterrence arising uh, from the, certainly from the Yugoslavia tribunal. The, the first and most important was during the NATO bombing uh, in, in 2000 over, uh, uh, over Kosovo. The NATO countries bombed Serbia in order to protect the lives of innocent uh, Albanian uh, uh, citizens of uh, the province of, of Serbia called Kosovo. 
and there were 78 days of bombing. Now, until, until that bombing, um, civilians were pretty much made the, the object of and the victims of, of war. Um, if you look at the, at the Second World War, both sides, both the, the Allies and the, uh, and the Axis powers, Germany and Japan, uh, attacked and didn't hesitate to attack cities with innocent children, women and men uh, being killed in their, in their hundreds of thousands. Uh, and of course the Second World War ended with uh, two, two atom bombs being dropped intentionally on huge cities, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan. Uh, in, in the over 200 civil wars since the Second World War, uh, civilians have been attacked. In Korea, the civilian casualty rate was about 84%. In Vietnam, it was over 90%. So civilians were attacked. Uh, and, uh, and that was one of the horrors of the 20th century. All of a sudden, when it came to bombing in Kosovo, 78 days, the heaviest bombing since the, Seven World, since the Second World War, under 2,000 civilian casualties, deaths and injuries, a remarkable drop. And the reason, of course, was that the, the NATO powers didn't attack civilian targets. They had military lawyers on their right hand and their left hand telling them what was a justified military target under the law of war, under humanitarian law. And uh, the, the, the result was that they, they used precision instruments, which made it easier, of course, they could, they could fire with precision and, 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 and shoot and, and, and destroy a building or even a room in a building uh, from 30,000 feet uh, above the ground. Um, but, but they did that and, and they spared civilians. And uh, I, I've discussed it with, with, with leading uh, officials at the Pentagon and in the German army and both told me that the reason for this remarkably low civilian casualty rate was firstly precision instruments, precision armaments, but secondly the presence of the Yugoslavia tribunal with jurisdiction to, to investigate and bring prosecutions if war crimes were committed. So they were very careful not to commit war crimes and to spare the lives uh, of, uh, of innocent civilians in, uh, in that bombing. The, the second example was a few years before that when the Croatian army struck back at the Serb enclaves. The Serbian army had taken over uh, parts of Croatia where there were a lot of Serbian residents and the, the Croatian army decided to strike back in what they called Operation Storm. And then the, the then president of Croatia, President Tudjman, and his army officers <coughs> publicly warned their, their troops not to commit war crimes. And that wouldn't have been done if the Yugoslavia tribunal hadn't been sitting uh, in, uh, in The Hague. Now, war crimes were committed uh, in Operation Storm by, uh, by the Croatian army. But my guess, and it's, I can put it no higher than that, is that there would have been far graver and far more war crimes committed had those warnings not been issued uh, by the Croatian leaders. So I think th these are two um, um, anecdotal illustrations of how uh, war crimes tribunals can act as a deterrent. Of course they're not going to stop. If every country in the world ratified the Rome Treaty for the International Criminal Court, and I'll talk about that in a moment, it wouldn't put an end to war crimes. Um, in, in any country there's crime. Uh, but I would suggest the more efficient the criminal justice system is, the more efficient the police are, the more efficient the courts are, 
uh, the lower the crime rate. The less efficient, the more corrupt, the higher the crime rate. And I can see no difference uh, or, or, or reason in principle uh, or in fact uh, for a different situation uh, to exist in the international, in the international community. The, these successes really ushered in a 15-year period of tremendous advance in international criminal justice. And they led to the calling of the Rome Conference in 1998, uh, Kofi Annan, then Secretary General of the United Nations, and mainly at the urging of the United States and Madeleine Albright, who was the, ambassador, the US Ambassador at the United Nations and later Secretary of State, was a very warm supporter of international criminal justice. Without her push, without her assistance, I don't believe that the Yugoslavia and Rwanda tribunals would either have been established or would have got off their feet after they were established. And she encouraged uh, the, the United Nations to call a diplomatic conference in Rome in 1998 to set up a permanent international criminal court. Um, they, the 164 countries turned up at Rome, which was remarkable, and at the end of, uh, of the two-month or six-week period, uh, 120 nations ratified the Rome Treaty uh, to, to, to set up an international criminal court. It's really tragic and regrettable that the United States had a change of heart on, literally on the way to Rome. The, uh, on my understanding, the United States military, the Pentagon, didn't want an international court with jurisdiction uh, over United States citizens and particularly over the United States military. They feared that there would be runaway prosecutors and biased judges uh, and, and they had a huge suspicion of, of international uh, criminal justice and President Clinton, who was then uh, in office, uh, decided to bow to the, to the uh, um, uh, scares and, uh, and the suspicion of the Pentagon and uh, joined only six other countries in the world that voted against the uh, International Criminal Court. At the end of his term of office and at the end of December of 2000, President Clinton actually signed the Rome Treaty but said it, 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 it had faults in the, in the view of his administration. He didn't send it for ratification to the Senate and it was left signed. Um, things got worse when President Bush came into office uh, what, what President Clinton was prepared to sit back and let's see how it's going to develop sort of attitude, uh, the Bush administration had a much more uh, um, uh, uh, anti-antagonistic policy uh, towards the International Criminal Court and effectively unsigned the, the, uh, the, the signature uh, of the Clinton administration and gave notice to the world that it was going to take steps to undermine uh, and in fact, if possible, uh, stop the work of the International Criminal Court. The, the, the International Criminal Court nevertheless has got underway. Um, the most optimistic supporters thought it would take a decade, it would take 10 years before the necessary 60 countries uh, ratified the Rome Treaty. Because the Rome Treaty provided that the court would only come into operation its jurisdiction would only begin after 60 nations ratified the treaty. And that took less than four years. And today I'm happy to say 105 nations have signed that treaty. The most recent uh, was uh, four months ago when Japan, a very important 
uh, member of the international community uh, when Japan ratified uh, the Rome Treaty. It's been ratified by all but one of the European Union. Um, uh, uh, so, so, so that's important support from Europe. I'm happy to say that, that Africa, African countries lead the number of countries that have ratified uh, the Rome Treaty. Some 27 uh, African nations have ratified it. And it's got underway. It's, it's, it's working, it's investigating uh, now four situations, all uh, as it happens are in Africa, um, in, uh, in Uganda, in the Central African Republic, uh, in, 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 in the Sudan, in the Darfur region uh, of the Sudan, um, and, and in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, warrants of arrest have been issued in two of those situations, in three of those situations, in Uganda for the leaders of the Lord's Resistance Army, uh, in the, um, in, uh, in the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, not only have warrants of arrest been issued, but two of the defendants are now sitting uh, in the uh, International Criminal Court's prison in The Hague awaiting trial. Uh, the first trial will get underway early in 2008 uh, against uh, uh, Thomas um, uh, Lubanga, Diello, and, and uh, he has a co-accused who will be joining him uh, shortly after. It's important, I think, that Lubanga has been charged with what I would suggest is one of the worst possible crimes, one of the worst possible war crimes, and that is the use of child soldiers. Uh, there are, unfortunately, in the, the, the most recent statistics show uh, that there's some 300,000 children between the ages of 11 and 15 who are being used as soldiers. Many of them include young girls. Uh, they, are, they are drugged, they brainwashed, they sexually assaulted uh, in, 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 in the, uh, as means of forcing them uh, to, be, uh, to become soldiers. And Nabunga has been charged mainly with having massive recruitment, having been responsible for massive recruitment of child soldiers, and I think it's it's the sort of it's the sort of situation which I would hope uh, will act as a deterrent, uh, because that's certainly a scourge, and uh, that that should be wiped uh, 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 off the face uh, of our planet. Um, the road forward, and let's now talk and get to the last part, and really the main part. What of the future? You can see from what I've said, there's been a tremendous, exciting advance. Um, 50, 60 years ago, there was no such thing as international criminal justice. If, if, if somebody had come to talk about the future of international criminal justice, people would say, what, what is that? It wouldn't have had any meaning because there was no such thing, and certainly not before Nuremberg. And now there's this huge, increasing volume of international law, its use, inter, uh, and, and the increase of courts because not only the International Criminal Court, there, there are other forms of international courts have been set up. There are the so-called hybrid courts, uh, the most important example possibly for Sierra Leone, the special uh, court for, for, uh, for uh, Sierra Leone, uh, which arose out of the civil war there, has resulted in the, in the indictment and the prosecution now which is going to begin in the next few months of Charles Taylor, the former president of Liberia, who was charged with fermenting war crimes in Sierra Leone. And that was a, it's called hybrid because it's a joint endeavor 
between Sierra Leone itself, between the government of Sierra Leone and the United Nations to set up a, a tribunal in Sierra Leone with Sierra Leonean judges and international judges and local prosecutors and international prosecutors. And, and it's done its work uh, very, very swiftly by, uh, by historical standards and, 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 and that, that's the one example of a hybrid tribunal. Um, the most recent to get underway in, in very recent months uh, is the Cambodia Tribunal, uh, interestingly charging Cambodian leaders for terrible crimes committed more than 20 years ago in Cambodia. Also a hybrid tribunal set up in cooperation between the government of Cambodia and the United Nations. So there are all these different forms of international justice uh, uh, courts that have been set up. The last one I should mention is, is in Lebanon. Um, th that's a completely new departure. The, the, the Lebanon Harbour Tribunal set up uh, again in, in cooperation between the government of Lebanon and the United Nations has been set up principally to investigate one murder and that's the assassination of former Prime Minister of Lebanon um, Rafik Hariri. Um, so it wasn't war crimes, it, it, it was a domestic, a huge domestic crime, the assassination uh, of a Prime Minister. But again, I think it demonstrates the flexibility of international, of forms of international criminal justice. Now, the way forward is a fraught one, it's a difficult one. Firstly, there's the peace versus justice debate. In countries like Uganda, people are arguing that because the leaders of the Lord's Resistance Army have been, uh, have, been, uh, have been indicted, that arrest warrants have been issued against them by the International Criminal Court, makes peace negotiations more difficult. The argument is that how can you expect them to agree to peace if they know that at the end of it they're going to stand trial and the prospect of spending the rest of their lives in prison. Um, and, and of course that is an argument that has to be met. Uh, because international justice can uh, interfere with, with peace processes, but not necessarily. It can work the other way. Certainly when I was the chief prosecutor in the Yugoslavia tribunal, uh, we issued an indictment against uh, Karadzic and Maladic. Karadzic was then the self-proclaimed president of the uh, Republika Srpska, of that part of Bosnia that was being run by the Bosnian Serb, the Bosnian Serb enclave uh, at its capital Palais, um, and Mladic was the was the army leader of of uh, of, of Karadzic, and it was uh, it was said by politicians, including the sec the then Secretary General Butrus Butrus Ghali, how can you indict these people during the war? We want to make peace with them, and you indict them as war criminals. Well, the way it turned out was the opposite. Because Karadzic was indicted, there could be a meeting in Dayton uh, in, in, in 1995. If Karadzic hadn't been indicted, there could have been no Dayton meeting. It was two months, Dayton was two months after a terrible massacre at Srebrenica, where over 8,000 innocent uh, uh, men and women, uh, 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 Bosnian men and women, uh, were, were slaughtered uh, by the Serb army. And there's no way that the Bosnian leaders would have sat in the same room as Karadzic uh, in, in, uh, in 1995. Because Karadzic was indicted, he couldn't go to Dayton. 
had he, had he tried to, to, to arrive in the United States, he would have been arrested and sent for trial to The Hague. So he couldn't go. And he was forced to accept representation, ironically, by Slobodan Milosevic, the president then of, of, of Serbia. Um, but the, the Dayton meeting was held, and as a result of it, the guns fell silent. And that was the end of the war uh, to this day. Uh, there's been no further fighting, no further military action in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So the indictment there clearly assisted uh, a peace. Um, but, but as I said a few minutes ago, it could theoretically work the other way. I don't know of any examples of, of it really interfering with a peace negotiation, but I think one must concede it could. I would suggest that that's not an argument against international justice. I think what the global community, what we all have to decide is, do we have a better world with international justice than we do without it? If the answer is we do, then there may be a cost. The cost may be making peace negotiations more difficult in some situations, but that's a cost that the community, the international community will have to pay if it wants to have international justice. One thing it can't do is really have its cake and eat it. It can't have an international system of justice and turn it on and off like a hot water, uh, like a hot water uh, faucet or tap. Uh, it, 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 it can't operate that way. It has to, prosecutors have to do their jobs, international judges have to do their jobs, and you can't withdraw indictments or put them on ice uh, every, every time there's a peace negotiation. What's interesting, of course, is that the Rome Treaty does give the Security Council. Now, the International Criminal Court's not a UN, not a United Nations body. It has close contact with it. There's an agreement between the International Criminal Court and the United Nations. But interestingly enough, the Rome Treaty gives the Security Council of the United Nations the power to order the suspension of any proceeding of the International Criminal Court for a period of a year and then it can be repeated for successive years. So if there was really a case of the work of the International Criminal Court stopping peace, the Security Council, if it was convinced, could uh, order the International Criminal Court to suspend its operation. So there is that political uh, uh, safety, safety net, if you wish, uh, uh, which, which is there to, use, to be used, but I would suggest only uh, in extreme cases. The other problem facing the International Criminal Court and any international ad hoc tribunals, hybrid tribunals, is that they have to rely on governments to assist them. Um, in your country, in my country, courts have police at their disposal. They have the executive arm of government working, working with them. If courts order the arrest of somebody, they, the, the police go out arrest them, to arrest them. And if necessary, the army might be called in to assist. But international courts don't have that luxury. They don't have police forces, they don't have armies, and they have to rely, and will for the foreseeable future, have to rely on the assistance of states in arresting people uh, that, the, that, that the International Criminal Court or had, uh, ad hoc tribunals uh, wish, to, uh, wish to prosecute. Now, with the, with the Yugoslavia and Rwanda Tribunal, uh, we had the advantage of a Security Council resolution binding uh, on all nations, and we had the huge advantage of the fullest support from the United States. And w the United States used its economic muscle 
uh, to, to ensure that leaders of the Croatian army ended up on trial uh, in The Hague. The United States threatened to withhold over a billion dollars of aid to President Tudjman's government uh, if he didn't ensure that his generals uh, surrendered themselves for trial in The Hague, and they did. Um, the United States threatened again over a billion dollars of aid to the new government in Serbia of, pre of, of President Djindic um, if, if Milosevic wasn't sent to The Hague. And to obviously his great surprise, Milosevic was arrested, put onto a plane and bundled out of, out of Serbia uh, into, in, uh, into the uh, ICTY, into the Yugoslavia Tribunal's uh, prison in The Hague. So you can see the, the, the importance of the support of the United States, which is at the moment, unfortunately, absent in the case of the International Criminal Court. It's certainly my hope as a firm supporter of the International Criminal Court that in the coming years uh, that that opposition will change and that even if the United States doesn't ratify the Rome Treaty, it will at least, in cases it supports, assist the International Criminal Court, such as in the Sudan. It was, it was the United States that declared the situation in Darfur to constitute genocide. And the United States, for mainly for that reason, was constrained when the, the, when the Security Council voted on referring the Darfur situation to the International Criminal Court. After firstly saying it would veto, it ended up abstaining and not blocking the reference of the Darfur situation uh, to, the, uh, to the International Criminal Court. And that was a huge plus for the International Criminal Court. Uh, it gave it far greater credibility and importance on the world stage uh, because the Security Council had referred a situation to it. The problem, though, I'll come back to, is arrests. In the case of Uganda, uh, the, the leaders of the Lord's Resistance Army are in Sudan. Sudan doesn't like the International Criminal Court, um, in particular because of the Darfur reference. It doesn't like it because the International Criminal Court has issued uh, arrest warrants against leaders of the Sudan government. One of them, Mr. Harun, uh, was a deputy minister in the, in the cabinet of the present president of Sudan, President Bashir. And the contempt of Sudan was demonstrated when almost simultaneously with a visit from the Secretary General, the present Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to Sudan, uh, 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 Harun, having been charged with terrible war crimes by the International Criminal Court, was promoted by President Bashir uh, into a position which, which demonstrates the contempt. He, he, was, he was appointed as minister to investigate humanitarian violations in the Sudan. Um, and the, the, the Sudanese government is able to do this mainly because of its oil wealth. Politics of these situations, you don't understand what's happening. Uh, these things happen when politicians want them to happen, and they don't happen when politicians don't want them to, uh, to happen. And that, of course, is why civil society plays an important role in these things. Certainly in democracies, if enough people want uh, international criminal justice to succeed, uh, political leaders hear that and do something about it. If civil societies don't care, then political leaders are more likely to ignore, uh, uh, to ignore these calls for international justice. So there, there, there are problems facing the International Criminal Court. It's been, it's been uh, in existence really since the 1st of July of 2002. 
So it's over five years old, two people in its prison, um, uh, two, two trials about to begin, um, um, seven, eight arrest warrants out. It's still an infant, uh, but it's an infant that, that needs assistance, that needs sustenance uh, from, from the International Criminal Court. And I think the jury's out. I think one can be moderately optimistic about the future, mainly because of the number of states that have ratified the Rome Treaty, mainly because of the successes of the ad hoc tribunals, these hybrid tribunals being set up, and the, 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 the thought that there is deterrence. And certainly there's a further and last aspect that I would, I would mention. Oppressive dictators, leaders who, who, who torture and murder their people, are no longer as free to, to, to travel in our modern world as they were before we had this, this outgrowth of international justice. The first example that I read about was the former dictator of Indonesia, President Suharto, who was getting medical treatment at a, at, at a German clinic near Frankfurt. Some years ago, uh, he had to cancel that medical treatment because he heard that there was a warrant for his arrest uh, and using universal jurisdiction at Frankfurt Airport. Uh, Hal Mario Mengistu, the former dictator of Ethiopia, uh, was given uh, asylum, um, uh, unfortunately, by President Mugabe of Zimbabwe. He got ill and went to a Johannesburg clinic in, in, in South Africa. When, when the news leaked out, the South Africans were urged <coughs> to, to, to arrest him. Before anything could happen, he beat a hasty retreat to Zimbabwe. So the message got out that, and it's, it's ironic that these worst oppressive, cruel leaders all want the best medical treatment for themselves. And, and, and some of them are, are no longer able to get it. <coughs> and I certainly hope that that might be a, a form of, of deterrence. Uh, President Fujimori uh, of, of Peru uh, was very recently extradited by Chile to face trial for war crimes he committed during the period of his presidency. So you see, it's a different world from that point of view. And there was a whole uh, saga with, with General Pinochet uh, and, and, and the attempt by Spain to extradite him for, uh, under the torture convention. It's generally become a, a very different world and that too is a reason for, for uh, moderate optimism. I believe that if the International Criminal Court fails, we're going to go back uh, to a pre-Second World War situation where powerful nations can do what they like, they can commit war crimes, there's complete impunity uh, for war criminals. And I don't believe that the people uh, of the world want that. The people of democracies and, and, and possibly particularly non-democracies, the people who suffer, uh, would like to see an end uh, to impunity for war criminals, to have the deterrence of, of, of an efficient, active uh, system of international criminal justice. Thank you.